And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to Culture Calculus. I am Kavitha Davidson. We're really excited for today's episode. Joining us will be Congressman Colin Allred, former NFL linebacker for the Tennessee Titans and current representative of the 32nd District in Texas. And we're going to talk about, you know, some of the issues that really matter to him, including paid parental leave and his experience being in the Capitol building during the January 6th insurrection. And joining us later in the show will be our Indianapolis Colts beat reporter, Stephen Holder, to talk about our conversation with the congressman and his own experiences with fatherhood and paid parental leave. Well, first of all, I am extremely pleased to welcome Representative Congressman Colin Allred to the show out of the 32nd District in Texas, representing Dallas. Thank you so much, Congressman, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you have an extremely interesting backstory. You played football in the NFL and in college, and now you uh, you have transitioned to full-time politics. First, you know, let's start with your football career. You played at Baylor. When you were at Baylor, did you did you want to play professionally? Was that the ultimate goal? No. I mean, you know, <laughs> obviously I wanted to, but I didn't think I was going to be able to. Um, you know, we weren't very good, I'll be honest, when I was there. Uh, that was the, the rough years for Baylor. In fact, when they came to recruit me, I, initially, I was kind of like, oh, there's no way I'm going to go there. But through a series of events, it ended up being um, the best option for me. And I was prepared to go to law school. I took my LSAT. Um, I sent off my applications and, and was all prepared uh, to go to law school. And, and I really had agents start calling me in, uh, during two days of my senior year saying they wanted to represent me. And I was like, in what? You know? And uh, finally, one of them, and this is, no, I'm not joking, one of them had to send me my uh, pre-draft uh, scouting report that had me uh, ranked as a fifth to seventh rounder. I, I went undrafted, but, you know, um, and uh, to convince me that this was a reality. And because uh, I, you know, I was just thinking, well, we're not that great. I haven't even, at that point, um, you know, my best year was my senior year, so I hadn't even had that year yet. Um, but you know, the NFL looks for body types. They look for certain um, attributes that, you know, you can't teach. And I, I guess I had that. And so that's what gave me a chance. And right. from there I took it. So. That's so interesting. I feel like, you know, we, we talk to a lot of athletes, especially about their post-retirement careers. And a lot of them had delusions, frankly, about whether or not they, they, they would be able to play professionally. Frankly, the NCAA, you know, one of the major stats is how many people actually make it from D1 to to the pros and how many people going into college believe they will. And the disparity there is huge. But you didn't have any of those um, of those notions. You used sports to get to college and then law school. Yeah, for me, it was I would not have been able to afford uh, going to Baylor. Um, I, you know, I would probably uh, gone to public school and, and had to take out loans and, and hope for scholarships and things like that. Um, but for me, my football in college was always about getting my degree. I started off as a biology pre-med major because in my high school and growing up in Dallas, you were smart. People say you should be a doctor or a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And so at first I tried to be a doctor. Let me tell you, growing up Indian anywhere in the country, that's yeah, what people exactly. say. I mean, I'm telling you, there's something about it, you know, communities of color. Um, and so I, I tried to be a doctor for my first couple of years. I was biology pre-med. I didn't really like it. So I switched over to history, which I really enjoyed, and with the goal of that leading to law school. Um, but no, it, for me, it was a means to an end. And even even playing the NFL, I saw it as I want to play long enough to pay for my law school. So. Mm-hmm. How did you enjoy your, you know, you were in the in the, in the NFL for four years, um, you know, never really started all of that. But how did you enjoy your time in the NFL with the Titans? Yeah, so I was an undrafted free agent. Um, I came in uh, to Tennessee. I was I was signed by a Hall of Fame scout named C. O. Bricado. 
who passed away not that long ago, uh, CO came to this like regional combine that I went to and I didn't even do well. I had the wrong shoes. Uh, it was like a, a grass turf and I brought like field turf shoes and um, it was, I thought it was a disaster. And I thought, there's no way this is going to help with anything. Um, but CO called me like the second the draft ended and was like, are you afraid to come to Tennessee? And I was like, no, <laughs> you know, and, and so he signed me and, you know, basically in that organization, that was the, of course, the former Houston Oilers CO found all kinds of players in Texas that no one else knew about. You know, he, in that same, uh, class that I came in he's he's he found Ahmad Hall who ended up being a fullback for us who played who started for a few years and so I went to the first training camp got released um and was told you know basically that they would look at putting me on practice squad and then they didn't and they brought me back at the end of the season and so I went to you know five training camps five years with with the Titans which is pretty unusual to be with the same team for five years but I was sort of um I was a Jeff Fisher guy in many ways I, you know, I, I filled, I figured out what my niche was and how I could be uh, stick in the NFL. Uh, and for me on that team, we had three good linebackers and in, in our four, three defense, I was the number four linebacker and I played all three positions in you know, a strong weak middle. Uh, and I was the extra backer that came in on short yardage goal line situations. And if anyone got hurt, I came in uh, and then I, and I played all the core special teams and so that was my niche is that I was kind of a Swiss army knife. I brought a lot of value to my roster spot, you know, uh, and they drafted linebackers every year I was there. And it was every year it was supposed to be probably my last year that that was the traffic was supposed to take my place, but they didn't do everything I did. And so I would end up making the roster again. Uh, and I, you know, the only reason I you know, stopped playing is because of my neck injury. I, in my fifth year in our fifth game, I hurt my neck against the Cowboys in Dallas. It, it it was really, I had been hurting my neck and it got hurt worse <laughs> uh, in that game. Um, and that was it. But even then I had an offer from the Vikings to come uh, see if I could make the team there on a one-year deal. And I turned it down to go to law school. So. Right. Which was the ultimate goal. And, and when you entered law school, what kind of law, did you know what kind of law you wanted to study and what you wanted to do upon getting that, that law degree? You know, it's funny. I, I, I thought that I wanted to be uh, a civil rights lawyer growing up and uh, and I thought that was what I was going to go into but then after I played in the NFL I initially thought I was going to go into sports law and maybe be an agent or work for a team or run a team you know something like that uh, and when I started taking kind of the first year classes you know I think most law students don't know what they want to do uh, until you get into those classes because some things will interest you and some things are just really boring and for me <laughs> contracts you know just really boring and that's really what being an agent is I mean yes there's also the negotiating side and all that. But I mean, it, it just didn't strike me. Uh, but constitutional law did. Mm -hmm. um, voting rights and, and civil rights did. And so uh, at my law school, University of California, Berkeley, uh, you had a chance basically, which is not at every law school, to kind of pick your classes. And so I, I steered myself down that lane and got to take uh, some great classes in, in the civil rights area. Uh, worked in the Obama White House uh, while I was there um, interning and then also at the Department of Justice. Uh, so I spent basically my last year of law school in DC working in the Obama administration. And so when I came out, I kind of felt like I was, I'd already been working. And, you know, for me that worked because I was older, you know, I came in to law school as on my second career. I wasn't really there to be a student and, and kind of just drift through life. You know, I needed to right. get into my next career. And, and for me, having that purpose was really important uh, because as I'm sure you, you know, if you talk to any former player uh, losing that driving purpose of being an athlete, of being mm -hmm. a, a professional athlete, of being at the highest level, uh, it's like a, a plug is pulled, you know, and you no longer have the thing that energized you every morning. It's your whole identity. It's your whole identity. Even if you did like I did and you weren't really planning on it, it right. still is your identity because you spent so much time doing it, you know? Uh, and once that plug was pulled, I really had to find, um, that next passion. Otherwise, I, I could tell I was going to spin out of control, you know, and uh, so I threw myself into it the same way I threw myself into football and end up, um, you know, like I said, having sort of a career before I even graduated. And then when I graduated, hit the ground running and kind of um, went from there. 
Right. As a side note, any attorney who tells you that they're passionate about contract law is just lying. <laughs> yeah, they might be passionate about the paycheck. They're, they're uh, about a hundred percent. So you worked under you worked in the Obama administration at the at Housing and Urban Development under Julian Castro, and you also worked at a private law firm as a voting as a voting rights litigator. What was it? I mean, I know that you know you're a black man from Texas, and uh, you know you you studied civil rights and constitutional law and everything. But what what was it? about about being able to argue on the side for voting rights that that appealed to you well for me uh i would look at the the civil rights field and there are so many different areas of it you know there's fair housing uh there's education uh there's just workplace discrimination uh you know there's uh, gender issues, uh, you know, race. Even transportation, which you've transportation, worked in, huge one issue. of the subcommittees yeah. that you're on. Yeah, huge issue. I mean, definitely life is impacted by your access to tra- transportation. And if you have a highway running through your neighborhood, right? right. Um, environmental racism, for sure. But uh, for me, it all boiled down to voting rights, uh, because in our system, your voice is through the ballot. Mm-hmm. And it just happened, so happened to be that while I was in law school, kind of coincided with a real... Uh, attack on the right to vote in the state of Texas, where I'm from, and really across the country. Uh, in 2013, the Supreme Court struck down uh, parts of the Voting Rights Act that, that really kind of opened the floodgates uh, to some of these really, really egregious laws that we saw coming forward. And Texas was, as always, unfortunately, leading the way in terms of trying to restrict the right to vote. And, you know, I, you look at it and you think, well, if you want to deal with any of these issues on the civil rights spectrum, you're going to have to deal with it through the ballot, ultimately. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why you know, Dr. King and the civil rights movement saw the uh, Voting Rights Act of 1965 as kind of the crown jewel of the civil rights movement. You know, the Civil Rights Act was very important, but the Voting Rights Act you know, put that power in the hands of African-Americans in the South and across the country where previously it wasn't there at all. You know? And so uh, for me, voting rights, uh, there's a quote in a Supreme Court case um, basically saying that voting rights is a source of all other rights, uh, the right to vote, and that if you can protect the right to vote, you protect those other rights at the same time. And so for me, that was, that's why I was really interested in it and wanted to be a part of fighting back against what I saw as something that was un-American. Well, you eventually make your way into politics um, and you challenged Pete Sessions at the in, in, in Congress in the 32nd District. He had to that point been the only person to hold that office, to hold that seat. Um, and, and that district is now a swing district and you've re, you've turned it blue. Um, you know, what what was it like to to see that kind of transformation in the middle of, you know, Ted Cruz very narrowly beating Beto O'Rourke, like like in the middle of what seems to be really this blue wave that has taken over Texas? Well, you know, it's my hometown and it was, it was the part of town that I'm from. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, sort of North Dallas, uh, a place where, you know, we have enormous inequities where, you know, we have some of the richest people in, in the country and we have some of the poorest people in the country and they live just a few minutes away from each other. Uh, and, you know, I, I'd grown up there uh, being raised by a single mother who taught in our, our public schools here and with the help of my aunt and uncle. Uh, my aunt was also a teacher and my uncle worked for the government and the F- FDA had an office in Dallas. And so it was my home. And I thought, you know, this guy doesn't represent the, the community that I know. And I knew that he had he'd been unopposed in 2016. You know, he'd been, it was considered to be so formidable that he hadn't even had an opponent. Um, but I, you know, I felt like there was a chance um, to flip that seat and uh, and also just to give my neighbors and the folks I grew up with and the community that I thought we were, even if we didn't win, just give them a chance to have some, another option, you know, and, and, uh, and it really, the, the campaign became, I think a really special vehicle here in Dallas where, you know, people, I think kind of poured their heart and souls into it. We had families bringing their kids to our campaign office to go knock on doors or to make phone calls. And, uh, it became a very you know, special kind of atmosphere. And we've, I felt like something important was going to happen, whether I won or not, uh, by the end of the process. Uh, and of course, you know, in 2018, it was a good year for us in terms of the Democratic Party. We won a lot of elections. Um, but I, I think what happened in Dallas and what happened in Texas was the result of, of our own community organizing and deciding that they were going to have a change. 
And that's really what I believe politics should be, right? I mean, politicians get a lot of the <laughs> credit, uh, of course, you know, when they win an election. Uh, but really, uh, if you look behind the curtain, the organization around it is always driven by volunteers. It's always driven by folks who are spending really their precious free time getting involved in the political campaign or effort to have the community represented the way they want to see it represented. And if, if the politician can channel that and inspire that, then great. Uh, but it's really, you know, they're, they're the ones who win it or, or, or not. And they certainly won it for me. Uh, and they organized and they decided they wanted to make a change. And that's why I was able to get reelected in 2020. And that's why I continue um, to have faith, uh, you know, in our community and in our country. Because I, I know that as bad as our politics are right now, uh, our people are not as bad as our politics. I'll just say that. Uh, mm -hmm. You don't have the conversations in your normal everyday life uh, that you see in, on cable news or in D.C. Like, that's not how people talk. It's not the conversations they're having. Uh, and if you actually get out there and speak with people, I think you'll find that you know, their goals are quite modest. What they want to see from their representatives is, you know, pretty simple, really. Uh, and that if you can reflect that, then they'll give you a chance. Right. You know, when we're talking about access to voting, um, obviously, Texas right now, the 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 how the Texas House just passed a bill that you know you've slammed as being basically voter suppression. Um, it's impossible to talk about voting and the um, the arguments that we're having about it without talking about January 6th, because the entire seed of the insurrection was planted um, on the basis of, you know, election fraud claims. You're in the House chamber when this is happening. What's going through your mind? Well, you know, it, it's it was first of all, I didn't have all the information at the time because uh, we were in the process of, you know, pushing back into this challenge, the results of, of the election. And so I'm getting texts from you know, my wife and my staff uh, about what's happening. And they're asking me where I am. And I'm like, I'm on the floor, which is the response means I'm in the safest place in the country. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is like, you can't walk onto the house floor unless you are a member of Congress or you're there with a member of Congress. Right. Uh, it's a very restricted space. Uh, and, you know, to, we start, and then I started getting um, more reports that, you know, that the Capitol looked like it was being surrounded and all these things. And, uh, and then they interrupted our proceedings and came to the microphone and told, told us, uh, you know, the Capitol had been breached, that they were going to start sealing the doors. I mean, this is, you know, crazy stuff. I mean, th these are decorative doors that they're closing. They're not meant to be keep people out. And if you see some of the kind of iconic pictures from that uh, event, there's furniture in front of the doors. That furniture is like what they put legislation on. It's not like supposed to be in front of the doors. That's how they barred the doors to keep these people out. And so, you know, I sent off a text to my wife saying, uh, you know, whatever happens, you know, I love you because she was at home. She's eight months pregnant uh, with our two-year-old. Uh, so we had our second son a month after that. Um, and, you know, it seemed like at that point they're telling us to get our gas masks out and, um, you know, to prepare for, you know, I was preparing for basically anything. So, I, you know, I took off my uh, suit coat jacket, which number one, you don't do that on the house floor. We never, I've never been on the floor without my suit coat and I never will be again, hopefully, uh, because I was ready, you know, for whatever may happen. And, um, you know, I, I don't know uh, what I thought, but I know uh, that, you know, I was ready to <laughs> have to do what I used to do, uh, which is put people on the ground, you know, and, uh, I never thought I'd have to be doing that in this job. I thought I'd, I'd left those those days uh, behind me. And, you know, I know a lot of my colleagues told me afterwards that they were staying behind me. You know, I'm like, well, I don't know what I was going to do. I didn't have a, a weapon or anything. I'm just, you know, going to get in you're the way. The weapon. Yeah, <laughs> you're, right. you're the weapon in that situation. I, I've <laughs> right. seen so many interviews, um, you know, Sean Patrick Maloney, Democrat from New York, saying basically, you know, I felt much safer having two formal NFL players, you and Representative Gonzalez uh, in, in the House at that time. Um, how, we're so divided as a country. How do we move on from something like that? Well, it, it is tough. I mean, the thing about football that I always loved is that you're working from a common set of facts. We, we have the saying football, you know, the eye in the sky doesn't lie. You know, the, the film does not lie, right? There, you watch the film, it's somebody's fault. 
on every, any given play. Uh, there's a reason why there was a breakdown. There's a reason why that hole was created and you can address it and you can talk about it and you will talk about it, you know, exhaustively. I mean, um, but we have, we, we work from that common set of facts because, you know, we're all watching the same film and there's no way around it. Um, and right now, the biggest issue that I see us having is that we're not working from a common set of facts. You know, we have folks who are, uh, you know, you can have your own uh, bubble in terms of information that you receive that may never be pierced by reality right now. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that we have to address some of the online uh, radicalization that's going on in our country. Uh, I think it's been in, in many ways worsened by the pandemic where folks have just been at home and online and getting them, themselves spun up on things that are just not true. But it's also true that, you know, leadership matters. And unfortunately, uh, you know, the head of, of one of the two major parties in our country as someone who has been the lead dispenser of, of misinformation, mm -hmm. you know, and this is not a situation that would have occurred, I think, under you know, George W. Bush or, uh, you know, Mitt Romney when he was the nominee or uh, John McCain. I mean, this is a new thing. Uh, and it's taking the Republican Party down an extremely dark road and one that I don't think believes in democracy, that I think is inherently authoritarian, that I think is inherently, um, is very foreign for us. I mean, it's, it's a scenario where they're not really talking about facts. Uh, they're talking about, you know, just trying to please the leader. I mean, even these voting laws that we're seeing now, they're not based on anything. They're about trying to make Trump feel good about the big lie that the election was stolen. And, you know, we don't have a government of people. We have a government of laws and we have a government uh, of, of, con of a constitution that sets down kind of our values. It's not about an individual. And it's always been true that we've had presidents, good and bad, but who ultimately understood that they were kind of keepers of the flame that they were there to be custodians of the country and of the democracy. Well, they and this, respected this, our institutions, no matter right. what they believed and what we right. might have disagreed with them on. They respected our institutions. Right, and this guy, this guy doesn't, and and he's extremely dangerous to American democracy. I think he's one of the most dangerous people in the world, uh, and we saw that on January sixth. And you know, I um, I voted twice to impeach him, and I, I think that uh, he should not be allowed to uh, seek office in this country. I don't think he believes in our system. Um, and so that, that has led to a lot of what we're seeing now is that, you know, he's, he's led this party down this path and you could say, well, you know, the voters are responding to that on their side, but leadership really matters. And, and, you know, we, we've seen this in other countries, we've seen this throughout history and apparently, you know, it's come here now, uh, this idea that, you know, you can have seemingly otherwise, uh, sane and reasonable people, uh, get caught up in uh, a movement that leads them down a path that is ex you know, extremely dangerous, even extremely violent. And that's, that's where we have to make sure we don't go, right? And so the 2020 election was incredibly important as, as a, you know, tough as it was. And Joe Biden got the most votes of anyone in our history uh, and you know, 80 million votes. And, uh, and that wasn't, I think, about Joe Biden individually. I think that was a collective decision by so many folks that during a pandemic, when they had to risk their lives to, to go vote, uh, they were they cared that much, you know, to to do that. And you know, he's going to win by seven million votes more over his opponent. I mean, it's, it wasn't really a close election. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, I think we need to recognize that too. That you know, unseating um, you know, sitting presidents is extremely difficult. This only happened a few times in our modern history. You know, Jimmy Carter and H.W. Bush, and you could even argue that H.W. Bush wouldn't have lost the born for Ross Perot, right? So uh, it's, it's very rare. And so to have the country say, that's not the direction we're going to go in is a positive. And so I, I think now what I'm most concerned with is protecting the institution of democracy to make sure that sort of the majority will that I know is out there that was reflected in the 2020 election that I saw in the 2018 election that I know, and I think we all know uh, in our communities is there that that can still be expressed in the next elections and it's not overturned by gerrymandering or by voter restrictions or by dirty tricks, basically. Because that's, I think that would also be extremely dangerous for us if we have a sustained period where people feel like their voice doesn't matter and sort of minority rule, so to speak, in terms of the people who are not getting the most votes or making the most decisions. 
And that's really hard for a democracy. And you can see people giving up on the system in, in a scenario like that. You just got back from paternity leave. Um, first of all, congratulations. <laughs> um, two years ago, this is not your first child. Two years ago, you were the first congressman ever to take paternity leave. First of all, how was fatherhood? How are you and, and the baby doing? Yeah, we're great. I mean, you know, we're treading water a little bit. I mean, just like anybody with a five or six week old uh, who's not able to sleep through the night, you know, retired and, and all that. And then the, the two year old is, on, you know, I think a little jealous at times. And um, but, you know, we got two boys and, and I'm looking forward to them growing up and being able to be friends and all that. That's something I didn't have. I was, I was an only child. So, you know, I, and I didn't know my father. So this is a taking leave was very important to me. Uh, because even in a job like this, for me, my number one job now is to be their father. Uh, and, you know, so I wanted to make sure that I was there for those those early days. And, you know, there's a lot of research uh, that's, that's very compelling about how important it is for men to be involved in their children's lives early on uh, and how that can lead to not only better outcomes for the child, but better outcomes for the home in terms of gender equality in the home. Uh, and so, you know, I tried to make sort of a a statement about it. I didn't realize actually when I was doing this that I was the first member of Congress to take paternity leave. Um, you know, I'm sure I've had I've probably been some men before who missed some time but didn't call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm the first one to take uh, paternity leave. And you know, as I said, as somebody who didn't know my father growing up, it was always I always knew that when I had kids, I was going to be involved in their lives. And so I've, I've tried to, you know keep that commitment uh, by taking this leave. And, and also, of course, just on, on an everyday basis, just being there. You know? right. You've long been an advocate for um, paid parental leave program. You're right now pushing for a national paid family leave program. You've obviously gotten buy-in by now from the White House. Um, President Biden announced family leave as part of his American Families Plan. What is wrong with the current system? Why don't we properly acknowledge the role that parents need, that fathers in particular need to have, and the, the support systems that they need to be given in order to do that? Well, you know, we're, we're really the only country of our developed country like ours, uh, democracy, that doesn't have paid family leave. I mean, you look around the, the world, it, it's an understood fact that something is going to happen at some point in your life where you're going to have to take some time away from work. And it might not be that you get sick, although, of course, that could happen. It might be that your, your, your mother or your father or a family member gets sick, or that you welcome a new child, and you need to have a little bit of flexibility uh, to spend some time with them. And I think what we're learning during this pandemic and working remotely and working more flexibly is that when you allow workers to do that, they can be as productive or more productive when you acknowledge the realities of their life. And really, that's all we're doing in a, in a paid family leave program is just acknowledging reality, which is that at some point you're going to have to miss some work. So 100% of the time, just like in the NFL, we have 100% injury rate, 100% rate um, uh, folks are going to need something at some point. You're going to need to miss some time for work uh, to take care of your family. Uh, or to take care of yourself. And, you know, that is just always going to happen. But we don't, we've not acknowledged it. And particularly because the people in most impacts at this point in our country are the low income uh, and women and women of color. And uh, because, you know, if you're, if you're a lawyer like I was, your law firm's going to offer you a leave uh, option because they, they have to because their competitor is, you know, and so they, and professional class in many ways, that this is becoming more and more you know, normal. Uh, but for hourly workers, for folks who are struggling to get by, you know, they're having babies and, and being back at work a few days later when they're physically not able to be there uh, when they shouldn't be there. You know, they're, they're coming to work sick when they shouldn't be coming to work sick, which we, we all recognize now. We don't want people doing that, but we, it's been happening for years now in our country. And, you know, what, what's I think really happening is that people are being ground under uh, working more and longer for less uh, and, uh, and having a really hard time having children, raising children, having families. And so, you know, you're seeing it, re- it's reflected in our declining birth rate. You're seeing it, uh, you know, in our productivity and, and just recognizing the reality that everyone's going to need this, that we should put in place a program that gives everyone that chance to either spend time with their newborn or to spend time with their ailing parent or ailing family member uh, to give them that flexibility makes them a better worker, makes them more productive in the economy, allows them uh, to stay attached to their uh, employer, uh, and ultimately is the right thing to do. 
right? And so you mentioned for men, and I'll just really quickly say a lot of men who have access to paternity leave don't take it right now. Well, right. Actually, I did want to ask you about that. How do you get over the stigma against yeah. taking paternity leave even when you have the option? Yeah, we, we've got to drop some of this BS, you know, uh, gender role stuff, you know. I mean, raising kids is not just for the women to do. What we're seeing in our society right now is that women are, have entered the workforce at, at similar levels to men, but are still doing all of the work at home. So they're just doing two jobs, you know, instead of having kind of, the, you know, the previous, you know, I think, objectionable setup. Um, this is now just adding uh, too much of a burden. And, you know, as I said, the research is quite clear that for men, uh, spending time with your children or with your child when they're young has enormous ramifications because it then, there's a Department of Labor study on this and I, I put a, a link to it in my press uh, release when we announced my leave, just I really wanted to, to stress this that it even leads men when they take paternity leave to then take on more roles at home mm -hmm. because it just, it just kind of starts to, uh, to, you know, turn up that, that knob of, you know, I should be involved in these things. And so it, it does lead to more gender equity in the home. Everything and, gets more equal, not just parenting. Right. Exactly. So, you know, it's taking, you know, doing the dishes and then, you know, uh, you know, doing the, the work around the house, uh, that is work, you know, and that is, time consuming and that needs to be shared. Um, and so, you know, for it's, it's BS, but in many employers, I think still, you, you know, there's a, a feeling that only a woman having a child should take off time and miss it. And then a man takes it, what's he doing? He's, he didn't have a child. Well, yes, he did. You know I mean? Not the physical part, but you, you're welcoming a new life into your home and you have the, hopefully uh, the commitment of, and the time commitment of being involved in that. And so we have to break that stigma for employers, break that stigma for employees. And, you know, if, if an NFL linebacker doing it, if I'm, if I'm not manly enough, then I don't know who is, right? So, you know, let's talk about it. Let's talk about how important it is for men to be involved in this. And, of course, that, we're not even talking about, you know, same-sex couples where uh, that's even doubly an issue when you have two men involved. So, I mean, this is a huge issue that we got to break these gender roles. we got to break this idea uh, that men shouldn't be involved in their child's lives. Right. Well, I'm so glad that you said this. And I know I've already taken more of your time than than I promised. So I'll, I'll, I'll let you go after this. But, um, you know, we see this, this stigma in sports so much. I mean, every every time a player misses a game because his wife is in labor, some talking head on a radio show yells at him about it. And I'm so glad that we're starting to see active players and, you know, former players like you and people who are involved in the public space, you know, really start to combat that and say, no, my priority right now is not being on a baseball or a football field. It's being in the hospital room with my wife who's giving birth. Um, my last question, I promise my last question. The Cowboys went deep on defense in this draft this year <laughs> and clearly needed to. Uh, but, you know, some some analysts haven't been so high on their draft grades. How are you feeling heading into the season? OK, so let me preface this by saying I grew up a huge Cowboys fan uh -huh. and then really didn't like them when I played okay. NFL. Like okay. really didn't like them because some labor issues, like Jerry Jones was like one of the leading owners trying to lock the players out, other issues like that. But anyway, uh, I'm going to need to have you on a podcast just to talk about that. By yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> no, I was there for the lockout, you know, and we right. prepared for that for a couple of years. And anyway, um, but now I'm back to being a fan and I want to see them do well because everybody around here feels better when they do. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's interesting what they're doing because they've spent a lot of capital on the linebacker position. I mean, they've had a second round pick in Jalen Smith a couple of years ago, a first round pick in Van Der Esch, and now another first round pick at linebacker within like a four year span. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I don't know any team that's put that much capital in linebacker in the linebacker position. As a linebacker, I'm kind of like, hey, finally, somebody values our position. But I also know there's a lot of great linebackers in the fourth round. Almost every single mm -hmm. great player I played with is like, a, I don't know what it is, but something, something about the fourth round is where linebackers go. You know, and uh, so I, I know that, you know, they've they're, they spent a lot of capital on it. I'm sure you know, this um, Parsons kid, he, he seems like an incredible player. I mean, I don't the game has changed so much even since I left to where running like a four seven, like I, I did, mm -hmm. is like slow, you know, and like a four three is what this kid runs, you know, and he's, I mean, where is that from? You know, that's incredible. But um, ultimately, uh, their scheme, in my opinion, uh, is, is the problem, not the personnel. And I don't think Jalen Smith and Van Der Esch became bad players last year. 
I think that their scheme changed from being an aggressive downhill scheme to one that was a little bit uh, standoffish. And that's why we saw them get gashed a lot. But uh, they needed that help. Obviously, with Dak coming back, hopefully he's full speed and all that. I mean, certainly the contract they gave him indicates that they think he will be. But they've got the tools on offense. Uh, Traditionally, when we played the Cowboys every year, they always had the, the big skill positions were always really good. And it was like the bottom half of the roster mm-hmm. that didn't that wasn't quite there because they didn't have that kind of professional team in place, the GM, you know, to kind of really make sure that your second string, your special teams was filled with top players that were the best at what they did, which is also important, you know. Um, and I think they've, they've addressed that more now to where you're seeing them you know, not not give up three first round picks to move up and get the flashy wide receiver. You know they stuck and they moved back, and so I, I like that. You know, and I don't know if this coaching staff is is the right one or not, but I think their approach is much more professional than than it was. And that to me, I'm all about process when it comes to sports, and it, the process will lead to better results ultimately. Whether or not it's going to be, you know, this year or if they have to find a different coach to do it, but I I think that the process has gotten better. And so I think you will see them continually be, be better. The NFC East is not like it's a great division at the moment. I'm uh, a Giants fan, I know. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, the Giants haven't gotten it together. You know, the Washington football team is doing okay. But, I mean, yeah, they're actually building a team over there, so look out for them. Um, and the Eagles have kind of fallen off after their great year. Um, but, I mean, so they've got a chance in that division. And, you know, if you have a good quarterback, you can make it. I mean, there's two, te- two types of teams in the NFL – there's teams that have a franchise quarterback and there's teams who want one, you know, and apparently the Cowboys have one. So that's that they've checked that box. So now they got to fill it in around that. And we'll see, um, there's my son back there. Uh, yeah. We'll see how, how it turns out. I, I think they'll be okay. This kid is first round pick seems like a, a great pick, but as you know, it's not just the first round in the NFL draft. I and mean, everybody talks about that, but like, I mean, they pick six consecutive defensive players this, you know, yeah. <laughs> so clearly they, clearly they recognize um, that they had an issue. And so I, I hope that, you know, I don't want to put too much on rookies, though. I, I never think that rookies are going to, you know, you're, you're lucky if rookies step in and, and play a, a big role. But I like the I like the focus. I'll say that. So. Well, Congressman Allred, I appreciate the time so much. I'm so excited to see, you know, what you do with parental leave and, and you know, voting rights and protecting the vote. So thank you so much for joining us and good luck. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thanks for talking about these these issues that I know aren't, you know, maybe not what every sports fan is thinking about, but they're, they're important. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, joining us now to continue our conversation that we started with Representative Allred is Stephen Holder, our legendary Indianapolis Colts writer. Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing today? I'm great. That is, I have never been called legendary. So uh, <laughs> my day got better. So that is unprecedented for me. So, I'm, but I am oh. doing great. I was doing great and even better now. <laughs> well, you're probably also doing great because it's not, you know, the draft is long behind us, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> draft season, I think, runs like three months now. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like it never ends, honestly. So, yeah, right. much better. Well, so we just talked to Colin Allred, a congressman out of Dallas, um, former NFL player. And one of his, you know, he just returned from parental leave. One of the issues that he's really been pulling for for years that is now getting major national buy-in from the White House is for a national paid parental leave policy. Now, first of all, Stephen, you're a father. Can you just talk about why, like, parental leave, but in particular paternity leave, is so important? Yeah, you know, when we... 
when we talked about you know having this conversation, I, I started thinking about this and something hit me and I, I realized, you know what, we need to have a conversation about just parental leave generally because we still live in a country where women in corporate America are in some cases terrified about what maternity leave will do to their careers, mm-hmm. right? Like that's still a thing. I don't know if it's as prevalent as it used to be. I, I'm not the expert, but I do know that, right? That's a calculation that women still have to make. It's still something that a lot of women consider, like, do, will I be putting my job in jeopardy if mm-hmm. I take the maternity leave that I'm actually allowed? Right, right, which is ridiculous. Uh, so it, it makes me wonder just generally, like, as America, as a country, <laughs> What are we doing <laughs> and why do we have this dismissive attitude toward families when, you know, supposedly family structure is a really important thing, I thought, in America, right? right? You know, so family values. Right. Where are they? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's contradictory, I feel like, you know, just as a as a as a country, as a as a society, you know. We don't really put any emphasis on this, I think, you know, and, and that's why it almost it does take a little bit of boldness, you know, like on the congress, congressman's part to, to make this a priority because it's not something people t- tend to talk about. So and to take it an even step further, the paternity side of this is is even less discussed. So, yeah, I I would tell you that, you know, I, I do think that it's interesting. All right. So I have I have a 12 year old daughter, for example, and I can remember 12 years is not a long time, but I think mm-hmm. conversations have changed a lot over the last 10 or 12 years because I can remember when my daughter was born, <laughs> taking my laptop with me to the hospital and like doing right. work while my wife and daughter were still in the hospital. You know what I mean? Because that's what was expected of me. I'm a man, mm-hmm. which is stupid, but you know, that's just the way society seemed uh, to tell me I was supposed to conduct myself. So I did it, right? Um, did you have any kind of paternity leave or parental leave afforded you? I don't recall having that. No, I mean, there okay. was clearly maternity leave. Um, right. and, and I mean, yeah, I mean, you could, it was understanding, yes, you're having a baby, don't come to work, right? But <laughs> but in terms of, you know, hey, I, I'm not going to be able to fulfill my responsibilities for the next couple of weeks. Uh, got it? You know, no, that was, mm-hmm. you, you needed to take time off, you know, and that was, that was taking your own time off. And I think, I think companies... Our company, even the athletic, you know, there's starting to be some priority taken uh, for the paternity side of this. So I think that's a positive, and I, and I, I really think there's been a progression even in that short period of time. Um, don't plan on having any babies anytime soon, but were that the case? You heard it here first. <laughs> right. Not breaking news because that has been very well established. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I think that's progress. Hopefully, it's progress. You know. Yeah. How how important? I mean, did you did you take time off when when your daughter was born? I'm trying to remember exactly what I did. I I think it was. Uh, now, obviously, sports writer life is different than like normal right. life, but I, I think it was. She was born the week before the draft, so that okay put undue <laughs> stress on the situation. Speaking of the draft, she just had her twelfth right. birthday, so uh, it's timely. But um, yeah, it was it was weird. It, April twentieth uh, is her birthday, and so I think it was like a week out from the draft. And I, you know, as as a sports writer, you you can't compartmentalize. Ah, I got to be there. It's the draft, so I, I think I did take a few days, but I I did mm-hmm. show up for the draft and I did cover the draft in its entirety. Now. Uh, could I have done a better job? Probably, yeah. And should I? Yes, probably. But I mean, you know, we also have flexibility. So I, I had that going for me. And I, I, I feel like I lived up to my responsibilities. But, um, you know, I, I think in a normal structured, you know, nine to five, you know, work environment, that might have been tougher, you know, Um it's not like I can just work from home and just, you know, do whatever. You know, it's not everybody has that flexibility. Um, so, yeah, I did. I, I definitely did prioritize being there, you know, whenever possible. But but again, that I think is a unique situation uh, because right. of what well, I and the do. congressman pointed out. The congressman pointed out that, you know, it's really going to be low income and, you know, non, you know, non-skilled, non-professional jobs that that need parental leave written into federal legislation because, you know, in the jobs that you and I do, we've got flexibility in, in where we do it from and, and the hours that we set and that kind of thing. If you're, you know, he brought up the example of being an attorney, you know, 
if you work for a major corporation, they have to compete with other corporations to allow for this kind of leave. But it's really the lower income workers and parents that that need this. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, I, I remember when I was a kid, um, the oldest of three siblings. And, you know, so now we're going back, you know, X number of years. The, the number doesn't matter. No, I mean, whatever. So I'm 44, right? So you're talking about, you know, when my brother and sister were born, you're talking about the very early 80s. And I remember my dad was in sales and he didn't make mm-hmm. a lot of money. And so I, I have no idea what the company policy was back then, but I just knew that my dad never missed a day of work, you know? And so right. uh, I just remember my grandmother having to come stay with us for a while and help out. And, you know, my dad missing maybe a day or two of work and was back at it, you know, and uh, and I just think that's the way he was raised. And that's the way, you know, he probably raised me. And because what was the alternative? Right. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, it, it, it definitely is is something that is is really embedded in our culture, you know, that like per- paternity leave is such a radical. It sounds radical to some people when in reality, I mean. We, whether you care about gender roles or not, you know, I, I don't. I think obviously we have definitely started to chip away at those things, right? Hopefully, right. But but whether you care about that or not, uh, there's a there there is a, so much value in having both parents participate, right? I mean, first right. of all, it's just necessary, and so I, I just think about you know how how maybe. I could have benefited maybe from my dad being around more, and my brother and sister could have. It's not he did anything wrong. It's just, you know, he lived in a at a time in a society where that just really wasn't a priority or really even thought about. So, um, so yeah, I call upon my own experience, and I and it really does kind of bring it home, you know. Well, the congressman made the point, and I'm so glad that he did about getting over, you know, these these like bullshit notions of gender roles um, and that parenting is, is women's work and all of that. And he literally said, listen, I'm a, I'm a linebacker. <laughs> like if, <laughs> if I'm less of a man because I wanted to spend time with my kid, you know, say that to my face basically. Um, so that's, that's one side of it. But then, you know, how much of this is also, you know, as we, you know, we talked about the stigma, even if you are allowed to take time off, you know, there still being a stigma behind men doing that behind and and as you mentioned at the top behind women doing that behind anybody Mm -hmm. taking time off to be with their kids while we preach family values and so much of this goes back to this kind of ideal of american industriousness right and this work ethic that we have that like you know those western european countries don't have because you know they only work like six hours a day and that kind of thing they take lunch breaks here they take lunch breaks. What's that like? You know, yeah. those lazy communists like <laughs> with their lunch breaks. But like this is something that we see in sports so much. And I just remember every time every time an athlete's wife goes into labor and they decide to miss a game. Right. Um, we see this in baseball a lot because there's just a game every day for <laughs> for, for a few months. Um, but there's always some kind of talking head who yells about how. You know, you've got your priorities all wrong. How could you possibly miss a game? I mean, what is that like for you to witness as a father, as a sports writer, as a sports fan, obviously? Like, yes, sports are important, but maybe the birth of your child is too? (laughs) Right. There will always be another game, okay? (laughs) There might not be another birth of your child. Like, you know, there's only so many of those, right? So, first of all, okay, first of all... uh, that right there, you talk about gender roles and, and that kind of thing, and just you know, life in, in being viewed uh, in the media, particularly through a male point of view, right? That is like mm-hmm. the absolute worst version of that, you know. And look, I mean, I'm a man; I see it all the time. I'm not always; it, it doesn't always occur to me, maybe even because I live in that world, you know. But that is what you just outlined. There is first of all, is true, and secondly is absolutely the worst version of that. <laughs> There's no question. <laughs> and secondly, uh, look, I think a couple of things. Number one, um, what what takes priority over your family, first of all, right? I mean, like, you know, like if you're, there's, your legacy is not going to be how many home runs you hit. It mm-hmm. will be to, you know, the average Joe Sixpack. But your real legacy at home is going to be, you know, what impact you have on your children. And and look, gender roles are 
first of all, ridiculous. And I think it's about time we're starting to do this. But but I've always felt that, like, I, I, I will say this, right? So I think that if you're... If you're just a if if you're if you're a human being who thinks about other people, you know, and you're a male in a in a heterosexual relationship, you have the women, uh, yeah, whatever the situation is, a uh, work situation, it doesn't matter. But my point is, if you're in that equitable, if you're in an equitable relationship and you see the work that goes into it, and yet don't step up and do your part, then I don't know what kind of person you are because it's really freaking hard. Okay, it's hard mm-hmm. as shit to raise kids. Okay. And I can remember being, you know, bringing it back to my own experiences again. But I can remember, you know, at times covering the NBA, uh, you know, it was just talk about, you know, long hours. Right. But mm-hmm. I was talking to my wife about this recently. And I said, you know, I I, I hope that I got some credit for whenever the team was home on a homestand. I bent over backwards. Right. To do as much as I could. And. I was like, oh, no, I'm picking them up from school. I got it. And whatever it was, you know, take them to the park. I, I did everything, literally everything. Not because I'm a hero. No, no, I, I don't want that. I'm just saying because I felt so inadequate, you know. Mm-hmm. And I just I think you you start to understand, you know, when you the more involved you get, the more you start to understand, like, maybe I need to do more. I'm not doing my part because you realize how much there is to do <laughs> and how much right. and how much of a commitment there is. And, and at the end of the day. Um, I, I also think that fathers in general um, don't realize, I think, some of the voids that are left when they're not quite as involved. And I'm not talking about absent fathers. I'm talking about, no, if you're the dad that's, oh, I got to work. Well, you know what? Your kid isn't going to remember the fact that you worked long hours. They don't care about that. They don't even, they don't even know what you do, probably. They don't even mm-hmm. understand what you do at work. What they'll remember is you picked me up from school and you took me for ice cream. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, I, my daughter still talks about that. You know, I would, that was our thing uh, when, I, when I was able to, have, you know, because I do have that flexibility. You know, that was mm-hmm. our thing. We'd pick her up from school. We'd go get frozen yogurt or something. And, you know, those little memories you make, um, they're not only memories, but they're also opportunities. You know, they are, there's lessons being taught there. There's this growth happening that you don't even realize. And I don't know. I, I just think that if we, as a society, really want to, to progress, we need everybody. We need mm-hmm. mothers, fathers. We need everybody, and I, I just think, I, I just think I'm happy that this is finally a priority. What are your What are your and your daughter's ice cream flavors? Uh, so for her, um, it's it's more about the toppings, really. It's like okay, okay every, with her, it's like every single topping available. Okay, that's the answer. <laughs> um, She's I, getting her money's worth of pink berry. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I was like, first of all, like you are not you are not taking that in my car. Okay. Like, no. We're gonna sit here and eat that. Um me, I am I am like so boring. I'm so boring. I'm like and and now I'm I'm getting older and I worry about calories, so it's like, hey, you have any like, you know, Sherbert or something? It's just like <laughs> ridiculous. Like who who am I becoming? But um yeah, so yeah, she's still at that stage where it's like how many toppings would it take for this thing to completely like collapse? Collapse, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I'm always it, it always wilds me out when I go into Pinkberry and I'm like, rainbow cookies are a topping. Rainbow cookies are a dessert. Like, <laughs> <That's> like, right? <laughs> like, is that on the menu by itself? <laughs> Can right? I just buy those? <laughs> oh. I feel like um, I feel like part of this um, paid parental leave conversation also, you know, like we can't ignore the rhetoric that we use as a society, particularly around black fatherhood, right? Mm. And, you know, there are all kinds of studies and they're all true about how, you know, two-parent households raise more successful kids. It's better for the kid when there are two parents in the household. Doesn't matter the gender. Um, but that that's just, that you know, that kind of a family structure is better. That's absolutely not to say that single mothers or single fathers have not raised incredibly successful kids. Representative Allred is one of them. Right. Um, but, but all of the studies do point to that. Now, on the other side, a whole bunch of a particular part of the political spectrum likes to point to that those studies as fodder to further kind of the pathology of the absent black father, right? And we have seen that that, is more and more of a myth as the years and the decades go on, right? How much do you think that paid parental leave can help that conversation steer toward more of what reality is and away from kind of the stereotypes that, oh, you know, 
black fathers are never around. Um, and, and the idea that fatherhood in general is just important as an involvement. Well, no, it's a great point because I think at, at the core, what do we really hope this accomplishes? I, in my mind, I think the answer is strengthen families. And, and just, mm-hmm. I mean, I think there are other obvious benefits, right? There's a lot of benefits. First of all, you know, make things more equitable. All of those things are really important. But I think the goal in the end is, you know, have stronger families, better adjusted kids, whatever the case might be. I mean, I think the family ultimately benefits, right? And so, you know, I think the conversation or the point, excuse me, you made earlier and Congressman Allred made about lower income families, you know, that's, look, there are financial challenges among, you know, our our black families in many cases. And that's just not to say we're all, you know, living check to check, right? But but certainly there are some, there, there definitely, that exists, right? So that's fine. And and we do make up a greater percentage sometimes of those, those lower income families. So, and yet they're not benefiting from any of these conversations in most of those, or in most of those spaces. So if we're, if we're able to, to, to tap into some of that, it can only help. And I just think that sometimes, uh, you know, the economics are such a burden to some of our black families as well. Um, and who's, I mean, who, who's there to, who's there to help? The, the system doesn't ever really work in your favor, right? Uh, if you, you have to legislate things at this point, you know, the, the, right. the, the way America is constructed, capitalism is such that unless it's legislated, you know, they're not going to just volunteer it, especially, uh, where, where we're talking, the spaces that we're talking about. America's running a business, not a charity. Yes. yes. <laughs> Can we just like dispense with the, the BS? So anyway, my point is, I do think that, yes, there, there definitely there's a lot of stress on, on black families. There's no question about it. And look, I, I think a lot of times we've seen in, in economic recoveries, for example, when, you know, when there's a downturn in the economy, uh, look at what's happened. Look at what's happened over the past year. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen that upper middle class and even, I guess, a lot of middle class Americans have largely been unaffected financially. Just like, I mean, to be completely honest with you, my life hasn't changed financially. You know what I'm saying? Thank God. I'm so happy to say that. And then you... And for a lot of people also hasn't, like, if you you are of a certain level of means... Mm -hmm. The, the struggles of raising kids hadn't been exacerbated to the same level. You know, you have all these reports of, you know, wealthy families in the suburbs being able to hire private tutors for their neighborhoods and maintain social distancing because they've got classrooms of like four people, right? <laughs> right. Like, that is like not reality, <laughs> you know, for most people. <laughs> for most of us, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, I mean, my daughter has a math tutor. He charges twenty bucks an hour, right? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> so, I, I don't consider that putting me in the one percent, you know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, like you're exactly right, though. I mean, I just think that you know, here in the real world, <laughs> you know, the you know, people really are deeply affected by this. There's such a there's such a, a discrepancy in how people have been affected, you know, or are affected through these economic downturns. And I think the last thing you're going to do in a situation like that when you're stretched is take time off from, from work when you can least afford mm-hmm. it, you know. Um, but what if, just what if you could do that and get paid <laughs> and your family could benefit from it as well simultaneously? I mean, it, what a novel thought, right? So. I, I agree. That's a very, very long-winded way of saying I agree with your original point, which is that I do think many of our black families could benefit greatly from this. Yeah. Well, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about that we talked about with the congressman, it, it was so interesting to talk to someone like him who readily admitted that football was a means to an end. Like, he had no notions of doing this professionally it was kind of on a you know he was an undrafted free agent when he signed with the titans and it was you know he he used it to go to baylor to go to college and he had want you know he took the lsats he wanted to go into law um you know how many in your coverage i mean you can you can speak to this how many players and the ncaa is kind of built upon this this lie of how many d1 players can actually go on to play professionally and then they see their dreams shatter in front of them right i mean like what do you think about that dynamic of of having more and more people just come out and say sports for me is a vehicle to better my life and to get to this place that i want to be this profession that i want to do 
Well, first of all, what I would say is that for for the schools, these athletes are a means to an end. Okay, mm. so let's just start mm-hmm. with that, right? I mean, they are sure. a vehicle to earning money for the schools and the conferences. That that's really what it is. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. at the at the elite levels, right? Maybe at smaller divisions, obviously the economics are different. But but the 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 schools you're tuning in to watch in March, okay, on CBS, right? Those they're in it for the money, okay? There is no greater incentive than that, all right? It's not about school pride, okay? Uh, but anyhow, what I'd say is, I, first of all, I I love that he said that, right? And and it's a it's great perspective, and it's what most athletes should. It's mo- it's how most athletes should view it. I mean, frankly. What else? What else is it but a means to an end? Your end might be different than one. One athlete's end may be different than another's, right? For for a basketball player, you know, who's an All-American and goes to Kentucky, we know it's a means to an end for him, right? And the means, mm-hmm. the, the end is the NBA draft. <laughs> but you know, for for like the congressman, it was you know I want to use this for a stepping stone to the next stage of my life. Where this gets complicated, though, especially if you're playing, if you're a high-level athlete or, or playing at a high-level program, where this gets complicated is, you know, do you have the support from mm-hmm. the program and the university to actually pursue what you want to pursue? You know, there are many instances where I've, I've covered college sports over the years as well, and there are many instances where I've heard people say things like, well, yeah, that's really not a football major. What's a football mm-hmm. major? You know what I mean? Uh, what does it have? Do I have to major in sociology? You know, and there really is almost a dis- shots fired at sociology majors. <laughs> by the way, well, I mean, it's, <laughs> I hate that, but like, it's it. I I've see I've seen that so much oh, it's, over it's, the years. It's like, why? You know, totally a thing. Yeah, but in, but you're absolutely right. Like, I love sociology. By the way, sociology is <laughs> like, great. Honestly, I think it was like that, one of my like, favorite classes. If more people were required to learn the systems of how social interaction work. Uh, the country would be better off. But yeah. anyway, that's a whole other podcast episode. Yeah, there's no question. The, the, the professors I remember are my journalism professors and my sociology professors. Because mm-hmm. that's the only stuff I cared about, I guess. But right. but anyhow, uh, yeah, I, I'm getting off track. But my point is, I, I really do think that uh, the, the, the schools, and uh, whether it be the coaches or whatever, the, whoever, you know, is, is, is taking an active role in, you know, saying these things or, or at least, you know, creating these ideas, you know, that you maybe can't pursue a biology uh, major, you know, if you're playing football. I mean, you have to really buck the trend and, mm-hmm. and go against the grain, you know, to pursue things like that. And what do they do? They have when these kids come on campus, one of the first things they're doing is meeting with their advisors. Right. And those advisors are very very much in tune with the athletic programs <laughs> and they they know what they want they know what the time commitments are all of that and so anyway my point is you have to be very focused and very determined as as an athlete uh if if you want to pursue something that's you know outside of the norm so to speak i think and mm-hmm. so congrats to the congressman for understanding that i think and right uh, and i, I just well, wish I that like schools would also... help these kids do that and, and better enable them to do that when they want well a hundred percent and and my last point my last question here will be you know i feel like a lot of people especially in the conversation about you know name image and likeness rights paying players compensating players in some way so many people on on the opposite side of that, we'll point to someone like Congressman Allred and say, Congressman Allred and say, look, he used football. He got a college scholarship. He graduated from Baylor. Then he went to law school. And now he's he's a and now he's he's a congressman. And clearly that, you know, that degree in exchange for his service on the team is compensation enough. Right. So many people are going to say something like that. Yeah. But I mean, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about capitalism. It's like, are we are we a capitalist society or not? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if if I can capitalize on my and who I am and, and my abilities, who are you to tell me I can't? I think is it Georgia that we saw a bill being pursued uh, this week that would uh, require the the students that that earn money from their image and likeness to distribute some of that money to. Mm-hmm. To other members of the, the athletic program, which, okay, maybe if you're the third string left tackle, maybe that's good for you. But like, I mean, again, that goes against the concept of 
capitalism and, and everything America's supposed to be built on. So, like, I can't keep up. I, I don't know what country I live in sometimes. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, right. are we in are we in America? Are we in France? Or what? I mean, I don't know. Where are we? So, uh, they, I, I think the, the it goes to, and this is not exactly answering your question, but it just goes to uh, what we already know, which is the ideas and what's important and so forth is always established by who's in charge. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. And so whether we want to flip the switch to capitalism or not is dependent on, you know, who's making that decision, I guess, you know, so the, here we are. <laughs> right. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. It was so thrilling to talk to you and the congressman. Uh, and these are conversations we're definitely going to need to continue for months and years ahead. <laughs> I suspect that's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Stephen. Thank you for joining us on Culture Calculus. I'm Kavitha Davidson for The Athletic. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to give us a rating if you can as well. And make sure to tune in every Thursday. We'll have a different episode, a different guest, and a different topic at hand. Thanks again for listening. See you next week. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.